Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. In the summer of 2014, ISIS forces swept through parts of Iraq that were home to the Yazidi people. This is an ethnic minority that has lived in northwestern Iraq for centuries, and suddenly they were under attack. Men and boys were murdered for being Yazidi. Women and girls were kidnapped and taken as sex slaves. What transpired was a genocide. At the time, my guest today, Emma Beals, was reporting from the region. Her assignment had ended, and she was in Erbil, a city in the Kurdish region of Iraq, near to where these atrocities had taken place. It was there that she received news that a fellow journalist, James Foley, who had been kidnapped by ISIS, was brutally murdered. The video of his murder was posted online. She had other journalist friends who were still in ISIS captivity, and she was reeling from the news. It was then that she received a phone call. A human rights group had asked her to investigate a report of a massacre in a Yazidi town called Kocho. Emma Beals describes what happens next in a series of powerful essays titled Kocho's Living Ghosts. There were 19 men surviving from the town's original population of 1,888. Emma Beals recounts that massacre through the testimony of the survivors she interviewed. And in this conversation, we discuss what happened in Kocho and its continued relevance to this day. This is, needless to say, a very heavy episode. I'm not going to plug anything, as I typically do ahead of a show. I do want to warn you that this episode contains a pretty vivid description of a mass atrocity, uh, but I do think it's important that these stories get told in order to honor and to remember this genocide that took place five years ago this month. So here is my conversation with Emma Beals, an independent writer, researcher, and analyst. So when I first heard about the massacre in Kocho, I was actually already in Iraq. Um, I had been there for about two weeks at that time, or a little over two weeks. I was living in Gaziantep on the Turkish border at the time. And um, as ISIS had started to sort of move towards Sinjar um, at the beginning of August, um, I was with a, a group of vice journalists, actually, and we headed for Iraq on an assignment to cover the breaking news of what was happening with the Yazidi um, massacre more generally. So we spent sort of two weeks at that point um, in northern Iraq covering what was happening. So covering, you know, you would remember those scenes of the sort of biblical flows of people through the desert as they came kind of from Sinjar Mountain through Syria into Iraq. Um, and we were covering, you know, the beginning of the U.S. airstrikes, um, the way that the Peshmerga were defending the sort of territorial borders that they have within Iraq. Um, and then that assignment had come to an end. Um, and it was two days after the murder of, of the journalist James Foley, which actually happened while we were on assignment. So the end of that assignment had been particularly difficult because 
just everybody um, in the press corps was very upset. I was personally um, particularly affected by that um, because of my own connection to some of the other hostages as well. Um, so it was sort of a really difficult time. We'd sort of spent two weeks in the in the blazing hot sun interviewing people about these horrific stories that they'd been telling us. Um, and I didn't really know what to do with myself. I didn't know where to go. The rest of the crew had left and I was kind of alone in this hotel room trying to work out what my next move was um, when the phone rang and it was sort of a human rights NGO calling up to say that there'd been this particular massacre um, among all of the, the Yazidi massacres. So the Yazidis kind of live in these small towns around Sinjar Mountain in, in northern Iraq. So Kocha was one of those small towns. Um, and it was a kind of an individual case in some ways because when ISIS had come into the area, um, a lot of people had fled. They just fled for the mountain from these villages and the people that didn't were killed or captured. Um, in Kocha, they had been surrounded for a period of, of um, 12 days. And so what happened there was, was sort of quite a, a unique example. And that had, um, the actual massacre had, had just recently happened. And this human rights organization would, um, asked me to go um, basically as a temp until they could get somebody mm -hmm. out to the region to Basically, really track like, down. Yeah, it's like take testimony so they can yeah. sort of get witness testimony sort of as it was sort of fresh and, and reliable. Exactly. So basically, the, um, mm -hmm. you know, I'll, I'll talk about the massacre a little bit in a, in a second, but um, the survivors were starting to find their way um, to Dehuk, and they wanted mm -hmm. me to sort of get them and debrief them before they were influenced in terms of their, their testimony. Yeah. So to take those testimonies in detail in a way that could be used in court later on before they had been you know, repeated to journalists or sort of um, worded down or altered in some way or before they had sort of compared their own stories. Um, so, so so that's what I did. So can, can you sort of situate like the broader kind of, you know, political context and, and sort of the military context uh, in which this ISIS assault on the Yazidis occurred? I mean, we're now speaking at, you know, about the five-year anniversary of uh, this massacre, of the, the genocide of the Yazidis. Can you describe the events that led up to this, this moment, this, this assault on Sinjar? Right. Um, well, it's kind of one of those how long is a piece of string kind of questions. But of course, the, the conflict in Syria had been going on for a number of years. And during that, you know, what was known as ISI had become ISIS. Um, and then um, in 2014, they had sort of increased their reach back across the border into Iraq. Um, and they had shocked the world by uh, taking Mosul city in Iraq in the space of basically a weekend. Um, and it was as if they had come out of nowhere, when, of course, the history of where they'd come from was, was reasonably extensive. But in terms of um, their impact in Iraq in that way, and in terms of the world's understanding of who was ISIS, it was kind of June when they took uh, Mosul City and just hundreds of thousands of people were, were, were displaced from the city and from the countryside. And um, so I had been out there reporting on that in, in June and that had kind of kept sort of taking everyone hugely by surprise. No one expected that they had that kind of uh, military power or that the Iraqi forces um, didn't have <laughs> enough sort of military power to resist. It's kind of like them. melted away, basically, is the, the 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 sort of story of what happened with Mosul. Exactly, exactly. And so they were they had taken this whole large chunk of territory, um, a lot of which is you know um, 
not particularly highly valuable strategic territory for either the Kurdish part of Iraq or the uh, Baghdad-led part of Iraq who are more focused on the cities, which they were sort of defending. Um, and so, you know, fast forward three months to, well, not even three months, a couple of months to August, and ISIS um, basically swept across the Yazidi territory and also into the Mosul Dam, which was a hugely sort of strategic infrastructure area that was situated um, around there as well. And they started to push on, you know, the KRG borders and some of those other sort of uh, towns that were um, adjacent to kind of where the Yazidis were living as well. And so it had been building up for a couple of months, but still this kind of took everybody by surprise with the with the intensity of the violence, you know, because everyone had sort of melted away during the Mosul offensive. A lot of people had got away. Um, ISIS had been building up their violence over a long period of months, but at a reasonably low level. Um, and just the violence that um, they wrought upon the Yazidis very suddenly mm-hmm. in terms of just going into towns and stopping sort of convoys of fleeing people and just massacring them sort of dozens mm-hmm. at a time was a, a sort of a whole new um, thing for them to be doing. And, so- and it escalated very quickly. And, and you know, this was undoubtedly a, a genocide, but as, as you noted, it was a genocide, you know, made up of a number of, of massacres and, and, and individual atrocities. Uh, your essay series uh, and, and your experience was um, surrounding the massacre in Kocho. Can you describe, as best we know, what, what unfolded? Um, how did that massacre transpire? Um, so what happened in Kocho is that ISIS arrived in the town on the morning of the 3rd of August 2014, which was the day that they kind of arrived in a lot of, of the surrounding towns as well. Um, but in Kocho, um, they ended up surrounding the town rather than just massacring everyone as they found them. Um, they did they surrounded the town and engaged in some kind of conversation with the uh, village chief, the Mukta, as they call him. And he sort of implored them to let them go, to let them go to Sinjar um, Mountain, where some of the other Yazidis had gone. He called the uh, sheikhs um, and village leaders in some of the Arab villages around, who he thought might have some influence with the uh, the ISIS emirs, and asked them if they could, you know, ask ISIS to spare this village. Um and so for 12 days, basically, so ISIS had said to the to the people in Kocho, which there was about 1,200 people there on this particular day when they arrived, they said to them, give up your weapons, raise your white flags, stay in your houses. And then they besieged the town, basically. Um, and this went on for 12 days of negotiations about what would happen, whether they would be safe, whether they would convert to Islam. Um, and then eventually on the 15th of August, uh, 12 days afterwards, um, uh, Abu Hamza, who was an ISIS emir, he came into the the town and he said, you know, you must gather um, all of the all of the people from the village into the school. And when you go to Kocho, it's quite a small village. It's quite flat. Most of the houses are one story, maybe two stories. And the school is kind of this big, imposing building um, on the edge of town. It's very much kind of the hub of the community. And so he got everybody to go to the school, separated them, men in one area, women in another, women and children in another. Um, and then he asked them sort of one final time if they would convert to Islam, and they said that they wouldn't. Um, 
then a Kurdish-speaking ISIS fighter came in, and, and this made the people kind of a little bit more trusting of this idea that they could perhaps go to Sinjar and to safety, because he spoke Kurdish like they did. They thought that there was some sort of plan had been um, arrived at, and, and they felt a little bit safe. So then the ISIS fighters took all their valuables, took their earrings from the women, took their mobile phones, their gold, whatever they had with them. Um, and basically they started with the men. They pulled up a couple of, of, of dump trucks or, or sort of flatback trucks, sorry. And they said, you know, the men must get into the trucks and we're going to take you to safety. And, and don't worry about the fact that the women and children aren't coming. You'll see them soon. It's nothing. There's no problem. And so they got the men onto the back of the trucks, um, two trucks at a time. So around 40 men at a time. And they drove them just to the air, at the edges of the village. Um, when they got to the edges of the village, so I've, I've interviewed a number of men who went through this, and all of their testimonies were pretty much identical about what happened. They got to the edge of the village, and, and the ISIS fighters would ordered all of them off um, onto their knees and into lines and then just shot all of them. Um, the, obviously, the bodies would fall on top of each other, then they would look for signs of life and, and shoot anybody that moved that they thought was injured that was still alive. Then they would go off, take the trucks, get another load of men and take them to another place um, around the, uh, the village. So there is a number of these kind of mass graves that sort of surround the village like a necklace. Um, they didn't take them to the same big big grave. They took them to different ones and they repeated this. And this went on for some time and then they came back and they buried the bodies and the people that were injured and couldn't move were buried alive along with the bodies. Um, and a small number of men sort of survived this and crawled out from under these, mm -hmm. these sort of piles of their, their loved ones and it, managed to escape. And those um, were the men that you interviewed. Those are the men that I ended up interviewing. Do we testified about this? Do we know about how many uh, of those men were, were killed in the circumstances you just described? Well, they have managed, they've been digging up the graves recently in the last few months. Um, so they have exhumed around 160 bodies, I think, at this point. It's not a definitive number. Um, and then there, there is obviously issues where some of the graves have been burned um, or some were like re-dug up and put somewhere else. So that's not a, um, a definitive sort of number of men that were massacred but we we believe that about 19 survived um uh, of the sort of population of the town so the, some of the men weren't in the village on that day and obviously mm -hmm. they survived but of the ones who were attempted to be shot sort of um yeah there's just a handful that that made it um and i i'd be interested to hear you tell the stories as they were told to you of two of those men kichi amo and Said murad how how did Kichi Amo uh, survive this ordeal? Well, Kichi rather miraculously wasn't injured at all. Um, so he he went through all of this and he um, he was was shot alongside his family and then he managed to crawl out um, from under the the bodies and he ran off and and hid somewhere while while he waited for the sun to go down. Um, Said. Uh, was um, hit several times. He was actually, uh, his cousins were killed next to him. Um, and he stayed really very still um, until the fire had gone away. And then he crawled out, he said to me, like a snake, 
um, and then ran away and found this kind of abandoned farmhouse. Then once he was at the abandoned farmhouse, he uh, actually met up with another guy called Ali, um, who comes up sort of later in, the, in this essay. Um, and, and Saeed and Ali actually told me about how they escaped and the story of how they got away from there is, is sort of extraordinary. So they waited until the sun had gone down and they watched. Um, and this is one of the heartbreaking things. All of these men, after escaping, watched ISIS go and bury the other men. And then they watched the ISIS fighters pile the women and children into the cars of the village itself and drive them away um, to Telefa. So they took all the women and children hostage. So they watched all of this happen from their hiding places. And then they kind of set off to walk to Sinjar. So Saeed had, I think, six bullet wounds at this point. Um, and Ali had been shot as well. Um, and Kichi went through the same journey. And they basically, they went off and found a, a village and um, they knew someone in this village and they knocked on his door in the middle of the night. And they said, can you help us? He had, of course, been threatened, like all of the people in the Arab villages, um, about helping any of the Yazidis. So he got them some medical help and then sort of made them leave and went and put them in an abandoned farm. And then um, they tried to find their way out of the village again. And then someone else from the village found them and tried to help them. And, you know, at one point, a, a sheikh came in and um, washed their wounds and tried to help them and brought a doctor. Um, some of these villagers were very kind to them. They tried to sell their uh, crops in order to pay a smuggler to get them to the um, all the way to the the mountain, which was quite far and it was so dangerous that people were charging a lot of money. Eventually, they sort of cobbled their way there, sort of through these crazy adventures. They were drinking. They at one point they filtered water that they found in a tractor radiator mm. through um, you know cloth to make it drinkable. Um, they were chased by dogs. You know, at one point they thought ISIS saw them and they had to hide in some bushes as this ISIS car sort of drove down a road. But eventually <laughs> they made it to kind of the base of the mountain and there was a man with a donkey who helped them get to the top. And so it took six days. But finally they uh, they got there sort of with all of their wounds still very much um, in need of help. And, and then they were brought to the hospitals in Dehuk, which is sort of where I met them. Hmm. And that's I, where our story started. And and Saeed Murad is the brother, you note, of Nadia Murad, the Nobel Peace Prize laureate. Yes, that's right. So he he and Nadia lost six brothers um, who were shot alongside Saeed. And he survived. And obviously Nadia uh, managed to get out of her captivity after three months. And so they're quite a remarkable family because Nadia has obviously done all this incredible advocacy work. And Saeed went off and um, joined the militias that helped to fight ISIS out of the town. He was not having any of it. He went and um, made sure to be involved in that and, and was actually given awards for his bravery in combat during those um, big sort of military campaigns. Can you sort of describe the the circumstances of, of your visit to Kocho? Um, so Kocho was held by ISIS for three years um, and eventually in 2017 um, they got they were they were beaten out um, of the of the town it was taken back it was one of the last sort of places in that area to be taken back they had uh, fort and, and Sinjar and some of these other places and eventually they got to Kocho and I had been 
uh, wanting to go back because I had obviously, because I had my own sort of trauma from that summer that had got sort of mixed up in my head with what had happened in culture because I had gone and compounded <laughs> what was happening in my life by listening to these sort of very repetitive, terrible stories that were um, had the same adversary and so on. Um, it, it all kind of got mixed up. And so I had for a long time wanted to go to Kocho because it was just so vivid in my mind and so interrelated with my own sort of experiences of, of that summer and of, of ISIS's violence against people that I cared very much about. You're, um, you're referring to journalists that you knew, that you cared for, that you were friends with who, who were murdered by ISIS. Yeah, that's right. So they were murdered that same summer of 2014. Um, so just, you know, that... We we saw on the news and, you know, people watching at home saw that as this very violent summer. But for, for, for me and then a lot of the others reporting on it, it was kind of this um, compound issue where we were, you know, in our own, own time dealing with um, our own feelings about what ISIS were doing to our colleagues, to our friends, um, and then going and reporting on the same thing. Um, and I was probably slightly closer to that issue than a lot of a lot of other people and so it had all got sort of um melded up in my head in some way um but it had I had this sort of deep um sense of empathy for these these survivors that I had met at, um during that time and I I felt compelled to go to Kocho and to keep telling the stories of, of what had happened to these guys so I actually went back to Iraq in the summer of 2017 and I tracked down the guys that I had met I tracked down um Kichi and Saeed and and, and Ali, um, and I, you know, talked to them about how they were doing, how they were managing to move on, what was, how did they feel about culture having been taken back from ISIS, would they move back there, and um, were they getting the help they needed? And um, then I, I realised in the course of talking to them that um, it, I, I couldn't very well ask them to come to the town with me. No one was living there at the time. Um, it was um, still reasonably insecure. Um, and they had a lot of, they had very varied opinions about whether it was somewhere that they wanted to go because of what had happened and, and um, because of, you know, the fact that the mass graves were still there and so on. So I actually ended up going by myself, you know, with a, with a fixer and, and, and um, we went off to, um, meet with the new Mokhtar of Kocho, who took me to Kocho and to the school. Um, it was actually quite a bit of an ordeal to get there. We sort of ended up getting flown across Iraq to get to, to the area because it was very insecure, and they took two trucks of fighters to get me there. Um, and the, way, the first place we went was the school. But presently, the school has an exhibition in it and is being turned into kind of a memorial space for the people that are missing. But at the time, because it was still very raw, it didn't have any of that. It still had um, debris on the floor. It had, as we walked in, you know, the Mukhtar was telling me he had found the school report of, of his nephew um, when he had the first time had walked in. And, there was just this overwhelming sense of being able to feel the enormity of what had happened in that space when you walked in. It was, um, you could, there was a sense of every everyone that had been lost there, of the fact that this was this last place where culture had kind of existed as a village, because obviously, even though they have recovered some of the women and some of the men and, and so on, um, 
so many of the people from the village are missing. You know, it, it was a genocide. So it culture at, in that sense is gone. Um, it, they're not able to go back and live in, in, a, in a way that would be anything like um, the old village. And so you can feel all of that when you're there in the school. And then I had gone to the mass graves. They had not yet started digging them up. They've been, they've been exhuming the graves this year. But at that time that hadn't happened. And so they took me to, to these graves where these terrible things that these men had told me happened and that everything was still exactly um, where they had said. So you could identify the things they had told me about. The bullet casings were still next to the mounds of dirt um, where the bodies had been buried. And so it was... It was this bizarre thing because it was so huge, you know, in, in the horror of it and in, in the um, in the uh, detail that I had understood. But when you were there, it was so banal, you know. Um, it's just a mound of dirt and a bullet casing. And so it kind of was this real sense of, um, yeah, just that banality of evil, really, like the, the, just how plain something so awful and huge can sort of boil down to being at the end of the day. You don't have to answer this if, if, if this question's too, too personal, we, we can move on. But um, you said you, you went to Cocho seeking catharsis and, and th seeking some, some healing. Did, did you find it? It sounds bizarre to say that, <laughs> that I went to Cocho to find some kind of healing. It was more of a, um, compulsion I guess than a sense of healing um and I kind of did um because obviously the graves of, of my friends have never been found um so in that sense it kind of gave me an understanding of what they might be like it gave me and in some ways kind of putting a place and a space to one of the um, very horrible and, and terrible acts that ISIS um, conducted that summer helped me to situate some of the other ones with it where I hadn't had access to anything tangible to be able to conceptualize it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. No, no, because it does, obviously, it Because it happened remotely. We saw these things on the TV, even though they were, they were so huge to us. And so in that sense, that part was helpful. It was also helpful to go in um, – have these kind of conversations that I had with the survivors about, you know, I talked to Ali about what is forgiveness? Could he forgive this? Um, and we actually had some sort of philosophical discussions, which is obviously not the sort of thing you normally do <laughs> um, in those kind of conversations. And so that was really interesting to be able to talk to them about um, healing and moving forward and what does that mean for you? Um, as someone who has, you know, so few resources and, and so little access to those things and, you know, can you ever forgive this kind of thing? So that, that part was, was sort of helpful as well. Um, and, yeah. Well, and, and one story you tell is of Kichi Amo's uh, process of, of healing and, and sort of how he's responding to this you know, the, to the tragedy inflicted upon him. You know, you mentioned earlier that Saeed Murad sort of responded by taking up arms, by fighting ISIS directly. What What is Kichiyamo up to now? Um, so when I went to visit with Kichi, uh, he told me that he, him and his cousin had been rescuing some of the women from Kocho. So they had been managing to 
um, negotiate with ISIS and smuggle some of them out. So that's a process that happens um, with a large number of Yazidi women, not just from Kocho, um, where people were able to kind of negotiate their freedom. And so he he had been doing that. Um, well, he told me he had been doing that at least with um, his family member and he produced sort of lists of the women that they had managed to free. Um, his own family had managed to be um, uh, saved from, from ISIS, his wife and children, and they had gone to Germany to get sort of psychological assistance to help them to recover from what had happened to them. Um, and so he had gained this real sort of sense of pride um, in, in being able to do that and to be able to bring bring those members of their community back. Uh, and finally, you know the 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 situation, the the tragedy, the crimes that you described, you know, seem to cry out for justice. Um, is there any sense of any like local judicial process or local um, you know, justice initiative that's happening on the ground? I mean, uh, you know, we know that you know Nadi Murad, when she has the opportunity to speak in front of audiences at the UN or even you know most recently in the White House, is demanding an international investigation into these crimes um what are are you hearing of of from victims what are victims demanding right now well justice comes in many forms so you know there's obviously the broader conversations that are being um helped by amal Clooney and nadia murad about the you know the yazidi genocide and it's been recognized as a genocide and sort of several international um, spaces and places, and that in itself is helpful. Um, you have the graves being exhumed um, through a proper process that's up to international standards, and that's to sort of help um, with accountability, with, with um, being able to say what happened. Um, it's slightly complicated in terms of Iraqi law, um, looking at the specifics of, of um, those crimes, because... What's happening in Iraq is that people who are associated with ISIS are being tried um, just for being a member of ISIS. And so those trials aren't necessarily saying this man was involved in this massacre and here are the victims who are going to tell us about that, which is how you might sort of um, get that like real sense of healing, I think, through the justice process is being able to, you know, give that testimony and, and you know, talk about who specifically it was because they recognised these men. The, you know, the, the people I spoke to, they knew the, who the people were that shot them because they lived in the village next door. So they would be able to testify. Um, and when I went back a couple of years ago, they said that they hadn't been asked for that kind of testimony, um, for that sort of level of, of, of legal process. They had that, you know, the broader genocide um uh, testimony had been taken, but not that sp the specifics. But then there's also another level of justice, which is um, allowing people to be able to move on with their lives in some way, you know. So when you go to visit, you know, most of the people from Kocho are still in IDP camps. Um, they have very few resources. There's a crisis of um, psychological assistance um, to the people that have, have come out. They're deeply traumatised. And there's some organisations doing some wonderful work, but there just isn't enough help. Um, to help them to sort of deal with the impact of it. So there's a, you know, a huge spate of suicides. Um, for some folks, you know, Kichi told me he never wants to go back to Kocho. And so he, you know, he needs a place or a space that he can go and sort of start to rebuild his life. Um, some of the others do want to go back, but they're not necessarily able to. It's not, you know, there's political issues that are going on around the return of Yazidis to their villages. And so, there is this more practical form of justice in terms of, um, you know, being able to live a dignified life that, that helps you to heal and move forward that is also not 
there's a lot of people trying, but it's just the scale of it is so big and, you know, it, the wounds are so deep that it's, that's, you know, moving quite slowly and is, is prohibiting these people from moving forward as well. Oh, well, Emma, thank you so much for your time, for, for being so open and, you know, about your experiences and, and for, for sharing, you know, these, these stories. Um, I'll definitely direct everyone to, your newsletter in which these stories are collected in a series of really powerful essays. Great. Thank you so much. And it's, you know, it's, it's great to have, to be able to share their stories. People need to know that this happened to be able to remember and try and prevent it happening again. All right. Well, thank you to Emma Beals. Thank you all for listening. And yeah, I know not, not much more to say other than, Uh, I'm glad to be able to be in a position to help amplify stories like this. Thank you all who helped me do what I do. We'll see you next time. Bye.